0: For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the University of Arizona School of Theater, Film, and Television presents a unique play called The Laramie Project. I'll talk with filmmaker Beverly Seckinger about her documentary, Laramie, Inside Out. Meet Raven Chacon, an artist who has become the first Native American to be awarded a Pulitzer Prize for music. His composition will be performed by True Concord Voices and Orchestra. And Stories That Soar features a song by a second grader that was written for her father. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This month marks 25 years since 21-year-old Matthew Shepard was killed in a brutal anti-gay hate crime just outside of Laramie, Wyoming. The University of Arizona School of Theater, Film, and Television will present a production of the play The Laramie Project. The play was created by the experimental New York-based Tectonic Theater from a series of interviews that were conducted with Laramie residents following Matthew's death. The director of this production is Greg Parati, a U of A professor who was a member of Tectonic Theater 25 years ago,
1: making him one of the creators of
0: the play, as well as a character in The Laramie Project.
1: I first started working with Tectonic Theater Project, which is an experimental theater company in New York. In 1996, we were developing a play called Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde, which is another play about a very important uh, figure in queer history and trying to figure out what our next project would be. We'd been meeting regularly, and we're kind of like a close family, so of course we were arguing a lot about what we wanted to do next, and, and um, nobody could really make a decision. And during that time, Matthew Shepard was murdered, and you know that story came to the attention of the company in the same way that it did to most of America through the kind of really gripping media coverage that took place over the next two weeks While Matthew was in the in the hospital in a coma, early one week um, while Matthew was in the hospital in a coma. And our artistic director, Moises Kaufman, kind of posed a question when this happened and said, you know, we've been looking at and re-examining the way that history is constructed. That's kind of the event of gross indecency, is looking at the way Oscar Wilde was understood through history and his homosexuality was understood through history. We were sort of deconstructing that. And he he posed the question, could we do a similar thing with a current event and sort of ask this question of how can the theater think through a, a very important contemporary story and look at it from a variety of different lenses as we have with Gross and Decency, The Three trials of Oscar Wilde. And, and um, everyone was very excited by that idea. Um, and so when we first went out to Laramie, Wyoming, we really went out sort of more as an exploratory trip. You know, we, we didn't really know we were gonna write a play at that point. We really genuinely just went out with the curiosity of can we do this? Is this something that's possible for us to do? And then we we conducted interviews and as there were no transcribing uh, services at that time, we transcribed all the interviews ourselves when we came back and then we did a, a workshop, a theatrical workshop in a process that we call moment work, which is a theatrical devising process that our theater company created, the reason we created it was to create theatrical performance using non-theatrical source material like Mm -hmm. trial transcripts, interviews, anything that's not a play. And so we ran these transcripts uh, through this process called Moment Work and then we shared just a series of what we call moments, little theatrical moments um, to a community of theater people in New York. You know, there were some really wonderful people there, great producers. Tony Kushner was there. There was like a lot of really wonderful people. And we didn't really know until that moment when we shared the play or the beginnings of the play, whether we were going to be writing a play or not. Mm. But the mandate kind of came back from the room that day when we shared the work that we absolutely had to write this play and and then we were off to the races and yeah. you know just followed our impulses from there until we got to opening at Denver Center
0: writing a play through a more normal means would have been so much easier it's like you guys bit off such a huge tall order in doing the interviews uh, the whole journalism aspect that was being applied there and also putting yourself in situations where you might be talking to people who weren't too crazy about your goals for the project. How often do you think it became an issue where someone's politics and tectonics politics didn't mesh?
1: Well, I'd say in that particular instance, um, it was surprisingly straightforward most of the time. There were a few situations. I didn't actually have one in in any of the people that I tried to speak to, but there were a few situations where, where company members ran into some obstacles. But... I think we had a certain advantage over kind of more conventional media because we had so much time. Um, You know, usually, so when this, when this story actually broke, you know, the media was doing its news cycle thing. So they came in, they were in a hurry. They wanted to cover the kind of, main facts of the story, and then they had to go. And um, we got a pretty good reputation pretty quickly that these were people worth talking to, I think because people had struggled with the media experience immediately prior to our arrival. So I think that put us at an advantage. And then because we were listening and interested, um, and I'd say it was almost more like an ethnographic project than a media project, I think people were okay sharing what they really thought and believed because we weren't trying to talk anybody out of their positions. We weren't, you know, in a, you know, trying to frame anything in a particular way. We were just really trying to find stuff out. I'll give one example of a particular person in the play, Conrad Miller, who's incredibly homophobic in his views of the world. And, and I remember having a really palpable sense while I was sitting with Conrad and he was kind of describing the way he feels about gay people, which was not flattering. It was my job to listen to him and not talk him out of it or defend myself. And um, you know, I was able to inquire into his perspective rather than just fighting with it. And, it. and I think that that was an experience for a lot of people in Laramie that they felt that they were being inquired into rather than positioned.
0: How is it that you and some other members of the Tectonic Company became characters in the play?
1: We do this process called moment work where people just develop moments of theatrical presentation in a, in a particular way. And we use text, but we also use what we call the other elements of the stage, light, sound, costume, whatever you want. And you kind of compose moments and you can pull text from anywhere, from anybody's interview. We kept field notes when we were in the field. And so every, that was part of our research was to, to do these journal entries. And we made our journal entries available to each other. And, um, a lot of people started using people's journal entries to develop their compositions. And then what we realized as we worked on is that it was a really, really useful dramaturgical device because if we needed to get somewhere else, we could just, you know, somebody's journal entry would just say, now we've decided to talk to the religious leaders in the community and suddenly, boom, you know, we have the text that we need in order to get us to the next place we wanted to go. And so it just became useful in that way. And also there's three main stories in the Laramie project. There's the story of the theater company. There's the story of Matthew Shepard. And then there's the story of what happened to the town. And so it's in this encounter between these kind of slick, like New Yorker people who go into Laramie sort of thinking they, they know what they're going to get and meet this town and are completely surprised in a way that I think audiences are also surprised by who these people, these residents are and their eloquence and their kind of, I don't know, just their wild and fascinating reads on, on stuff. And I I think we use the company as a kind of way in for the audience in that sense. How
0: does it feel to be revisiting
1: this work and directing it 25 years later? It feels great. I love working with my cast. They're incredible. And, um, you know when i pitched this i really pitched it because here i am at the university of arizona i've been here 6 years and i just thought well it is the 25th memorialization of matthew's death it's it's a moment that we could mark with a production and so i pitched the production with that in mind and since the time i pitched the production about a year and a half ago the amount of kind of anti-transgender legislation that's come out all across the country is so shocking. And I mean the, the the obvious strategy, cynical strategy behind it is so like it's such an affront that it feels really important to share this story now and to also share the the shepherds and their activism now because the, the Dennis and Judy will be coming down to do a talk back after one of the shows and also to do an event which we might talk about in a bit.
0: And now the conversation about the Laramie Project continues as Leah Britton talks with two student actors who are part of the cast.
2: My name is Babacar Ba, and I am a senior acting
3: major. My name is Hope Niven, and I'm a senior theater arts major here. So
4: when you guys first heard the story of Matthew Shepard and found out that you're going to be involved in this production, how did you guys react? Because it's such a hard and heavy story That came from time before we were even born or even able to comprehend what was going on. Mm
3: -hmm. For me, I I was in Greg's class like a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. And that was when I was like first exposed to Matthew Shepard and the Laramie Project and just hearing him talk about it there. But when we first found out that the university was going to be doing this production, I think all of us were really excited because, you know, some of the things we've talked about of different things going on in the world. And we have a lot of students with queer identities that I was excited for this like voice for them, you know, and these types of things. But it is like it was quite um, shocking. I think I was really excited um, to have the privilege to be able to do this. But it was scary because it's it's a big responsibility and you know doing it with someone who was very heavily involved with it you want to do it justice
2: probably my first reaction was i'm playing Greg." (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: um
2: i say besides that it also feels really good to be doing a show with so much impact in the first place like i feel like a lot of shows we do here are they're fun they're like they're, they're great but like not a lot of them have as much substance or this much weight behind it so it's nice to like Have that variety in the season, first of all, but second of all, have that importance of the story being told right now.
4: So on top of that, what has the experience been playing Greg and having the source for your role right in front of you?
2: (laughs) Um, Whenever we first talked over the summer about like uh, each character that we were playing with, um, I remember him telling me that whenever I was going to play Greg, it wasn't going to be like him, Greg. Starting out, just playing it as me first and then like how I would react to this kind of text is how I first started going at it. And then as we started getting deeper and deeper into that rehearsal process, I know uh, Greg is a bit more, the actual Greg wants me to be a bit more snarky. Uh, <laughs> and my Greg wants to be a more snarky. Being, having him there and like, getting to a whole nother level in terms of like, how, what kind of details you can get with the character. Cause like, a, whenever you play a character, a lot of the backstory ma- is like kind of made up or if you have it there, like, there are some gaps you gotta fill, but like, there are no gaps I gotta fill over here, so. <laughs>
4: And I can only assume that your director's history with the story can offer such a unique experience. What has mm-hmm. that been like? Oh,
3: yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think it's been nice to have such a strong resource to ask questions to, because I, I feel like when you often do shows, you have to kind of figure it out or piece those things together on your own. But um, it's been nice having Greg as a resource who knew and talked to all these people. And also, just someone who's so, like, being directed by someone who is so passionate about it also fuels us to be more passionate and work harder and, you know, work to the best of our abilities to tell the story.
4: How has your experience with this story impacted the way that you kind of look at life now mm. and the lives of your family and friends? Because we're the age that Matthew Shepard was when this tragedy occurred. Mm -hmm. So how does that impact the way that you are looking at your own life and
3: going through your day-to-day? It gave me a big perspective on just, like, humanity and, like, people and what we're capable of, which is sometimes really tragic and terrible, but is sometimes very beautiful. It's kind of like what Babs was talking about. I haven't done a lot of shows where I really feel like they mean something. Or, you know, I I enjoy theater. I enjoy practicing it and performing, but I don't often feel like it means that much. And for me, like, this has totally shaped the way I want to go into the arts. This has shaped what I want to do with the arts and how I'm like, oh, I can make art that means something and I can enjoy performing and do the things I love, but I can still be changing people's lives and the world.
2: Yeah, it just there's this I remember when we first did our read through which was the first week of rehearsal I remember the biggest thing I was t- I took away from it after we you know started debriefing after it was in the act one finale Dr Rob has a line where he says something like I don't know if verbatim um, but like it's he's talking about Matthew and Aaron McKinney one of the people who was involved in the murder and he was just talking about how They're just two souls to him. He was a doctor, so he saw both Matthew and Aaron McKinney the same night that this incident happened. And so it was just like, they're kids, you know?
3: And the line that Babs was talking about is, um, Dr. Cannaway has this line about, I felt a great deal of compassion for both of them. Mm -hmm. And that was like, when we all heard that, it was like tears all around the room. And I've had a couple people ask me like, oh, how do you say these things about gay people? I think about when they did the interviews and saying them as an actor feels like how they were just listening to them as interviewers. And that's how it feels for me. It feels, you know, feels detached and like I'm really taking in who these people are. I think I just want people of all beliefs, all values to come to the show because there's a space for everyone there to receive this message and... I think there's something really valuable about seeing change in people throughout the show. I want students to come see it and I want them to challenge themselves. And if they're uncomfortable by something, like to sit with it and think why and, you know, don't feel ashamed, don't feel guilty, but sit with it and think, okay, why do I feel this way? And like, what can I do? You know, how how can we take what we've all seen or done or, you know, shown to the audience to. Benefit our community. That's number one, always.
0: Thanks to our guests, Professor Greg Parati, Babakar Ba, and Hope Niven. Performances of the Laramie Project run from October 7th through the 22nd at the Tournebeam Theater. You can find more information on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Beverly Seckinger is a Distinguished Outreach Professor at the UA School of Theater, Film, and Television. She's also a native of Laramie, Wyoming, and she returned to her hometown 25 years ago to make a documentary about the aftermath of Matthew Shepard's murder. It's called Laramie Inside Out. There will be a free screening of the film on October 10th at the Loft Cinema.
5: I was going on sabbatical in the spring of 99, and I was planning to make a scripted, satirical film. And then I received this news of what had happened in my hometown from my old English professor in my hometown at the University of Wyoming and it did not take too long at all in fact to decide you know what forget this other project I need to go back to Laramie and see what's going on to what must now be some kind of gay community as we would have said in 1998 and how they are responding to this murder because the news struck me and anybody else from Laramie and lots of people all around the world um, very personally uh, and it was personal me for a number of reasons, growing up um, a closeted young person in Laramie in the 70s where no one breathed a word about you know gay at the time uh, to like now land in Laramie where this you know this story has become the biggest news story in the world literally <laughs> about things gay. It was kind of like I had to go back and see what's going on. so
0: So as a filmmaker returning to your hometown, what was the first thread? That you began to pull on in this tapestry?
5: Good question. I had already made contact with um, Jim Osborne, the director of the student gay organization at the time, the LGBTA, from a tiny town in Wyoming, who, you know, quickly became the spokesperson of gay Wyoming at the age of young 20-something. Anyway, was in touch with that group uh, in the months leading up to the beginning of the first trial of his two killers, which was scheduled to happen in April. So in that interim time, I had done research, I had uh, been corresponding with Jim, I acquired a new camera, because cameras are constantly evolving, as you know, and basically got it, threw it in the car, drove up to Laramie, and um, arrived on the eve of the first trial. And the next morning, in a big snowstorm, walked down the street to the courthouse to see what, you know, why there were um, news vans and uh, so forth from all of the big stations at the time, you know, CNN, etc., gathering at the courthouse. And uh, Fred Phelps, the pseudo preacher, um, was there um, picketing at the courthouse and then countering uh, his people were college students dressed like angels. Many people are familiar with that style of, of counter protest now. Actually it was founded at Matthew's funeral in Casper a few months earlier. And that was the first shoot of the film for me. I walked in there with my new little camera and it was like, oh my God, what is happening in my sleepy little town where nothing happens? And it just went from there.
0: What would you say, Beverly, is one of the most profound interviews that you captured for your film? Was there someone that you spoke with whose words still echo in your ears?
5: I feel that way about all the main characters in the film, really, who have become close friends of mine. Um, and it's you know quite a range of different people and several of them will be joining me for Zoom Q&A at the screening at The Loft on the 10th Um, and not for the first time we've done a variety of events together over the years um, including a lot of stuff in Laramie itself it was either I think it was around the 20th anniversary nearly all the main people except Father Roger who had moved away um, and Jeff Mack who had moved away but he'll be there on Zoom I think this time anyway joined me for an event and an amazing conversation.
0: Did you, at that time, or have you since, had a chance to uh, talk to Matthew Shepard's parents?
5: Yes, I have, and it was only recently. It was only it was a year ago or so. Um, they were in Phoenix for um, a, a Shepard Foundation fundraising event, and that was really the first time I got to speak to them. I mean, I've made my film available for fundraising events for the foundation if they wanted, etc. But um, I think the people surrounding. Judy and Dennis were trying to protect them somehow, they thought maybe it would hurt them to watch the film. I don't think that's how they would react if they did watch the film. Because it's not so much about, yes, it's about Matthew, not personally though, you know, as a a person who didn't know him but who experienced this, but it's very much about how different people's lives were transformed by what happened to him. Like he made a lot of people become activists in their own different spheres.
0: What do you feel is one of the reasons why Matthew Shepard's story resonates to the degree that it does.
5: You know, that exact line of wondering is what I was trying to explore when I first left town for Laramie to, to start working on the film. Like, why, if there, you know, a gay bashing is happening every other minute. It doesn't discriminate that violence. So why did this incident capture the public imagination in that way? And I asked everybody involved in the film what they thought about that, too. I think it's a variety of things. It's um, certainly the shepherds getting extremely involved in being vocal supporters of queer youth. You know, not being embarrassed about their gay son, but in fact, trying to find a way to honor him and, um, I don't know, do something positive and transformative in the wake of this horrible loss. And how his friends also came together to create that angel action protest that I spoke about, that's seen in the film and in the play. The imagery of the fence, the imagery of you know the prairie there, you know, desolate, freezing prairie outside of Laramie in October. You know, others say, oh, it's he was he's like such a non-threatening, um, diminutive, soft-spoken uh, white college student <laughs> guy gay men college students that i spoke to at that time all of them to a one it was like wow that could have been me and you know a lot of people oh that could have been my brother that could have been my son that could have been my grandson my neighbor my whatever somehow it struck people in this way that they could relate to a lot of positive change has been catalyzed in his memory over these decades and um I suspect, just as it did before, like with, uh, you know, the, the Fred Phelps coming to town saying Matthew is in hell and this kind of stuff, um, that just spurred people to get involved on the other side of that. Nobody wants to identify with that. You know, even Fred Phelps did good, I, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> there was a point at which, um, you know, the, the Westboro Baptist Church people would, um, it started at the funerals of people who had died of AIDS. Yeah, Fun, nice for the families and friends. And then it expanded and expand, then the Matthew Shepard said, whoa, now we got a lot of press out of that one. So now what, what can we do? And then they began doing this at every single tragedy that happened to an American or Americans. I mean, people who died fighting in Iraq, people who died in 9-11, um, mining accidents, you name it. So they, went, they took that as far as you could take it, kind of.
0: That was filmmaker, professor, and musician Beverly Seckinger. She'll be presenting her film Laramie Inside Out at a free screening, followed by a community conversation and Q&A at the Loft Cinema on Tuesday, October 10th at 7:30 p.m. Tucson's Grammy- and Emmy-nominated True Concord Voices and Orchestra is launching their 20th season with concerts running October 13th through the 15th. One of the featured works is called Voiceless Mass, which earned its composer, Raven Chacon, a Pulitzer Prize for Music just last year. We'll be joined by Raven Chacon in a moment, but first, here is True Concord Managing Director Wells Kaufman to tell us how he learned of Raven Chacon and his work.
6: I got to know about him and his music when a good friend of mine told me about this piece called Voiceless Mass. This good friend of mine is a big time classical music critic for a big time publication in the United States. Um, And uh, I wrote him a note and said, I wanna know more about this composer and piece. It just sounds so interesting. I hadn't heard a note yet. It's such an intriguing title. It is such an intriguing title and the story behind it and what it means. And I thought, boy, if this is something we could do at True Concord, a vocal group primarily, um, it would be intriguing and provocative, and it just went from there. And I reached out um, on his website to his wonderful uh, group of folks that take care of him and asked if we could do the piece, and here we are. Raven, would you begin by telling our audience where you grew up?
7: Yeah, I grew up in northern Arizona on the Navajo Nation in Chinle, Arizona. And uh, I was born in Fort Defiance and lived in Chinle till I was about six or seven, and then the family moved to Albuquerque. And I I pretty much lived most of my life in Albuquerque, but at a certain point, the more I became a musician, I started traveling, and and I feel like that's never really stopped since I was about uh, 27 years old. And so, um, yeah, I'm on the road right now, going to you from Pittsburgh.
0: You're involved in so many different kinds of art, kinds of expression, what sort of importance do you put on your work as a composer? Is that foremost in your mind?
7: Oh, yeah. Everything is considered a composition. Everything starts as some kind of music prompt or musical idea. And at a certain point, I I suppose I have to decide if it's going to be a work for chamber musicians, classical musicians, or it's something that I have to build a new instrument for and play it myself. (laughs) Or maybe it becomes a... An art piece, you know, it becomes a video work, or becomes a sound sculpture, or a sound installation, and maybe sometimes it's it's not even um, something I can do. And in the case of this show that I'm curating this week up here at the Carnegie Mellon uh, at Miller ICA is is an exhibition called Impossible Music. So my wife and I, Candace Hopkins, who's who's a curator, we started thinking about what could it mean to make impossible music, or to be in a world of impossible music. Well, that wasn't a task for us to make impossible music. It, we we gathered artists that we know to to put those ideas to the test and and bring us artworks that would represent that idea. And so so yeah, everything everything begins as as music, and and um, been a, a goal of mine to just find the best form for it to take.
0: Well, impossible music and voiceless mass both seem to have something in common there. Uh, what was the procedure that you followed when you created voiceless mass
7: that started as an invitation that was present music nominal music organization out of milwaukee uh, had approached me during pandemic you know there was people who were still trying to make projects happen in 2020 and 2021 and um, for myself that time was highly productive i mean I had it was the first time I was able to situate myself at home and have an organized studio and um, I was back in albuquerque at that time and so I, I said yes to everything everything that came my way every invitation i said you know i was excited to just be in a position to make music again and not be on the airplane and so i i uh wanted to work with them and they they had an idea for a concert and that concert had several components to it or several parts to the invitation one of the One of those was that it was going to be a a new piece be performed at their annual Thanksgiving Day concert that they do every year. The other part of that invitation was that the performance was going to take place in a cathedral, St. John's the Evangelist Church there in Milwaukee, and this church is known as having a magnificent church organ. And so I asked about the possibility of using that as part of the the new commission. And so those components put together, you know, an, an invitation to an Indigenous artist to make a work on the occasion of Thanksgiving, which of course is um, can be very controversial to Indigenous people, yeah. but it's definitely a date to be responded to. And then the site of the Church led me to think about, about the history of, of the Catholic Church and other Christian denominations and those relationships with Indigenous people. And so I wanted to write something that was in the style of, of church music, something that might be in the form of a mass. But knowing that the instrumentation of present music wasn't going to include a choir, wrote this with the idea that voices would not be present. they would be even uh, hinted at being suppressed or no longer existing. And so this became the metaphor for that relationship, that, that relationship of suppression of conversion, and of loss of language.
0: What about the reaction to the piece? Uh, what did you hear at the time at the concert? Maybe, or how long was it before you knew that you were uh, being nominated for a Pulitzer?
7: I didn't know at all that I was not nominated until an after an hour after I received the award did I realize <laughs> I got this thing? Uh, they don't give you a heads up at all. But, <laughs> but you know, backing up to answer your question, uh, at the time it was we did one performance. And I think for a lot of composers, that's all we expect, is it gets premiered, it gets performed once, and that's, that's it. You know, maybe, maybe it'll get played again. And at that point in my career, that's, that's what I was happy with, and I'm still happy with that. You know, I, there's an idea, and it gets played once, and then you, know, you move on to the next thing. But it's, it's been nice that this has been performed more than once, and I get to hear different interpretations of this piece and also get, being able to bring this topic to different places, because it's all very relevant, especially in the Southwest. my experience, you know with this. I myself growing up somewhat Catholic, have, we have a different relationship and discussion there, but it's not too different than what you know somebody in Canada might be having around this same topic. So it's nice that this piece can, can travel around and continue that, that discussion about, about this, this history. But um about a year later, I got a uh, I, start, I saw the news that I it had won the Pulitzer Prize.
0: Well Wells, what would you like to say about True Concord's um, investment in this piece and what can
6: the audience expect? We're thrilled to have this. it's It's an honor to do new work uh, at any time. It's not an obligation or a burden quite quite the contrary, and that's always been part of the kind of... Uh, Mantra of what True Concord does, and this program is no different. This is a program called Songs of America, so it's going to include wonderful spirituals and interesting arrangements, some Sonoran Desert Mexican music. Um, Robert Frost uh, was the poet for Randall Thompson's brilliant Americana piece, Frostiana, and in the middle of all that, we have uh, Raven's work and a world premiere of a piece in our Composers Competition. There really couldn't be a better way to start a 20th anniversary season of True Concord than with a piece that is not just interesting and not just um, filled with history, but it's so Arizona and, and Southwestern based. We want to have um, a greater feeling and sense of community. Uh, one of the things that's great about True Concord concerts is that when people come, people who come feel like they belong there and they have a sense of ownership. I'll tell you one of the things I'm most looking forward to is the reaction to it which will happen that night and three performances, two in Tucson, one in green Valley and afterwards emails and texts and things like that. It's always interesting with any new piece or a new play or a new opera, um, new visual art to have that happen. We're also thrilled that we are doing this quite by accident in a way, um, in collaboration with Tucson Mocha who have an exhibit called "Wild hissing. That is of Raven's work, just an exquisite, Um, exhibit and uh, they've actually extended the time of that exhibit in order that it encompass our performances that are coming up in October. And literally I called the curator there back in January, Raven, I think I spoke to you right after this. Um, and I said, so have you ever heard of this composer named Raven Chacon we're doing his piece? And she said, well, we're doing an exhibit. <laughs> and, and it was one of those happenstance, uh, fortuitous kinds of moments that just made everything feel even more right, if, if that makes sense. sure. Um, I believe in those serendipitous kinds of things happening and it's been great to get to know uh, Raven's work and I hope we can do more of it in the future.
0: Well, looking at your work, Raven Chacon, you have such a flair for titles, for engaging names of things that make me want to know more about it. Tell us something about "While Hissing at Mocha."
7: Yeah, like Wells, you know, I also value those happy accidents or those alignments that just seem to be accidental, but really, you know, we don't know where they come from. And so that's that's what I think music is: things lining up with other things, <laughs> either by accident or by chance or yeah. or planned. Yeah, um, but these, uh, yeah, the 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 title for that show comes from one of the scores that's being exhibited, and so what you'll see when you uh, see the exhibition at at Tucson Mocha is thirteen music scores, and these music scores do not necessarily incorporate the the kinds of Western music notation we're familiar with with classical music, it, it sometimes uses some of those, you know, note heads and staff lines, but uh, it uses a, a new language, visual language that I've been working with um, and that I've presented here in this in this form of these scores. So these scores are for solo performer, and they're dedicated to different Indigenous women musicians and composers and colleagues that, um, that I've collaborated with over the years or that are heroes of mine or artists that I feel like the rest of the public should be aware of. And so one of those compositions is for playing a flute for as long as possible on (laughs) one single breath. Okay. And one is to do this four times. So the first time one does it while singing, another time one does it while whistling, the third time that flautist blows the flute while humming, and the fourth time they Blow the flute as long as possible while
0: hissing. It reminds me of the composer Raymond Scott, who uh, composed a lot of music that was used in animation. But that wasn't what he was really composing for, you know, when he was an early electronic music pioneer. Mm -hmm. And when he would audition people for his group, he would say things like, uh, Can you play it like you just made it up? (laughs) Or... (laughs) you know, ask them to hold a note for as long as they can. Or if I ask you to go from your lowest note to your highest in 12 steps, what would you do? And that that was his method of uh, audition rather
7: than, you know,
0: having someone play a prepared piece.
7: Absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of uh, uh, prompting I like to do in composing. I mean, a, a lot of this is written in standard notation, but text or even just being there in person and being able to, try different experiments out with a musician is one of the things that I value most. And, um, you know, I feel that each time I compose something, I'm I'm learning from a master musician who knows their instrument, you know, inside and out. And so I get, I get to ask these questions. What does it sound like when you, you hold this instrument, uh, you know, upside down or whatever. And and so, you know, you try different things and, and um, a lot of these scores, you'll see they're, they're both of these kinds of, Uh, prompts for making sound but at the same time their intention is to relay a bit of biography or a bit of information about the work that these people that i dedicated these scores to uh, are engaged in so they're biographical they're they're a bit transcription and prescription but they're also portraitures of the work that
6: that they do
0: well um i'm afraid we really don't have any more time i think wells might have one more thing he wants to say
6: i just want to say um, um about the uh the training and work that you're doing with young um, composers, Raven, I think is so fascinating. So I'm just going to say the name of the organization. And people can look it up. Na- Native American Composer Apprenticeship Project, right? I think you've been working with them for over yeah. 20 years or something like that, which is fascinating. People should Google it and and, and uh, learn more about it. And we hope people come to one of these programs where really all these different kinds of musics, from Beautiful Dreamer and Genie with the Light Brown Hair and Raven's Peace <laughs> and this world premiere and the Frostiana, they all speak to each other. Eric Holton, our music director, is really good at putting these kinds of programs together, and we're excited. My
0: guests were composer and multimedia artist Raven Chacon and Wells Kaufman, the managing director for True Concord. We have the dates and times for the 20th season of True Concord performances on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Also, the Tucson Museum of Contemporary Art is currently presenting While Hissing, a multimedia show by Raven Chacon through December 17th. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of multi-talented performers called Stories That Soar. Their mission is to help young writers realize the power and potential of bringing their stories to life in other mediums. This week we'll hear a song written by a second grader named Angela. It reveals yet another facet of what living on the U.S.-Mexico border can be like for some families.
8: Quiero que mi papá cruce la frontera para que podamos pasar más tiempo con él. My Dad. Please make this story come true.
0: That song was written by Angela, a second grader at Naco Elementary. Go Cardinals! It was sung by Andrea, a seventh grader from Wakefield Middle School who takes part in Literacy Connect's Youth Center Programming. You can watch the accompanying video on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Aspiring student-age writers can submit their stories to the Magic Box Story Portal now at literacyconnects.org. And listen for more Stories That Soar the first Thursday of every month on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. The show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.